House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. All right, welcome back into the House of Mystery, and of course, I'm Al Warren. Now, joining me for the co-host job today, we've got Mr. Mike Brown from Dark Poutine Canada. How are you doing, Mike? I'm back, I'm back. I don't yeah. I'm doing okay. Lots of crazy stuff going on in my life. My book is done, my audio book has been completed, and it's going to be released on November 2nd. That's exciting. Yeah. That's real exciting. Oh, so you, yeah, you, you actually recorded your own audio book too, didn't you? I did. And uh, I, I really think that the people who recorded it with me should get medals for yes. having to listen to me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm sure they've heard a lot worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, no, I just, I, I find that hard work. I, I, and I can't do my own books. Uh, it was grueling. It was uh, five hours a day for four days. So yeah, yeah. 80,000 words. That's a bit much for me. Um, I'm always, I can't speak anyway. I'm on radio. <laughs> um, anyway, um, so we've got an interesting show today. And uh, today I came across a guy that uh, uh, worked on a case on one of the books that I wrote years ago. But we were both doing a show for CNN. It was kind of interesting. And So anyway, we've got Mr. Jim Van Allen. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. My pleasure, Alan. Well, Jim, before we get going into this, I, I, I find it really interesting, um, your background. Um, how did you decide that this was what you wanted to do, like criminal profiling and being a detective and being part of the Ontario Police Department? Where did, where did that come from for you? Well, I, um, from a early age, I've always uh, been interested in police work. I had a, a brother that was on the uh, provincial police, always made it sound interesting. I decided to give it a go in my mid-20s, and... Uh, very quickly, I uh, found my interest uh, was drawn towards criminal investigation, and, and that's the way I handled my career. And uh, I went into, you know, I, was, I did the normal day-to-day general duties, policing in uniform that uh, a lot of us do, but the, the provincial police also does a lot of criminal work in uniform as well. Um, but about halfway through my career at the 16-year mark, after being uh, uh, a plainclothes detective in a district crime unit, an opportunity came up to advertise the second criminal profiling job uh, ever on the OPP. And I thought that would be uh, very interesting to pursue, put my name in in a field of 10 people and was uh, lucky enough to qualify for the position, was selected. For a two-year, two-and-a-half-year uh, uh, intensive training uh, period, went uh, to the FBI Academy and worked with the FBI profiling unit, a uh, bunch of other uh, experienced uh, profilers in Virginia, Ottawa, and around, uh, and worked with my uh, mentor at the provincial police, uh, Detective Inspector Kate Lines, and. Uh, it was a learn-as-you-go, uh, a lot of self-study, a lot of interesting courses, highly specialized courses, and um, it all fits together uh, with the experience that you've developed over the years as an investigator, and um, I was able to try and help other investigators with the specialized information that I had been given because I knew what they needed. I had done that job. I knew how they did their job and how I could hopefully make things easier for them, help them understand the crime they were investigating a little bit better. I know it's a broad topic, but can you help to demystify the idea of criminal profiling for us? Absolutely. I would love to do that because that's one of the things that I'd often uh, encounter is is people – think that it, there's a lot of deep uh, psychology or something here, and there really isn't. It's a, it's a lot of common sense logic. It's very, the process is very close to the process that uh, an experienced and intuitive criminal investigator will use anyways. But we're 
we augment that with some um, uh, applied criminal psychology. We've been taught sometimes it's more in the field of normal psychiatry, depending on the case you're looking at. And um, because of the, we were allowed to do this on a, a daily basis, and this was our focus, uh, I would see a lot more crimes. We did a lot of our work for the provincial police uh, and about 50-some percent for outside agencies as well, all municipal um, departments in Ontario, some uh, in different provinces, some in the States. I've worked with people in uh, Europe and Australia as well. And uh, I estimate that I have been exposed to one way or another, approximately 850 different homicides. And that's that's a lot of different cases from which you draw a lot of experience. Uh, you see common patterns in some of the crimes that you look at, and, and that's what we would do. We would try and recognize um, uh, various crimes, or out of the crime scene findings, we would try and recognize different criminal personalities that have committed other similar crimes. I've walked into crime scenes, looked at it, and and I knew, recognized that I had looked at four, five similar crimes in the past. And there's a, an intuitive logic that if you know the outcome of those previous four or five crimes, and you're looking at the same one now, chances are that offender might match certain important characteristics that those other crimes did. And uh, you'll, you know, go through and analyze the different crime scene findings and the various events uh, that happened in the crime and uh, assess other factors, um, develop, you know, theories about what's going on, test your theories to um, the data that you're looking at. Uh, develop a profile and propose various uh, suggestions, investigative alternatives uh, to um, to investigators that uh, might positively further their investigations. And as a profiler, I'd imagine that um, going through over 800 crimes like that, how does that change you? How does it how does it um, make you into a different person? I, I don't really think it does. I mean, certainly you you see a lot of graphic violence, uh, but a lot of people uh, deliberately channel their investigations this way. Not all get to uh, uh, the privilege that I got actually doing this uh, this type of work. Uh, but if you went into it. Um, you know, you, you've sort of asked for it. Now, I, I've seen a lot of graphic violence that now being retired, I really don't miss too much. Uh, there's there's certain things, of course, you can't unsee once you've seen them. But, uh, even the, the tougher cases, uh, we were very uh, duty-oriented, and uh, somebody had to do it. We had the training, and, and we were the guys, and... Uh, the guys and the girls that uh, were, were chosen and developed to do this. So that was our job, and we did it. And I was um, consider myself very fortunate to have done it. Uh, some people can only do it for five years, and they feel they've had enough. And, and that's fair. Uh, everybody has their own limit. And um, if you feel that this is taxing you or bothering you, this uh, working in violent crime, and it, it's not for everybody, um, then you should get it for your own uh, benefit, the benefit of your family, and, and find something else that uh, you can uh, chase with your passion. Uh, I, I ended up doing it for uh, approximately 15 and a half years, and I've still continued to do aspects of the job, even in, in retirement. Well, I just wonder, but do, do, do you... F- does your opinion of people change? I mean, no. after after seeing so many crimes, like when you are out out and about, um, do you actually, you know, what I, like do you sort of think of someone as possibly a, a criminal before you, you know what I mean? Like, do you put you on edge right away? 
Um, you can't help uh, when you're in the business of uh, analyzing behavior not to uh, do it on an almost daily basis. Uh, you shouldn't be taking this home and, and doing it with your family or anything like that. But uh, you notice different things about people. Uh, people cast off a lot of signals about themselves anyways. That's, that's human nature. Uh, we telegraph a lot about ourselves anyways. From the way you uh, talk, the, your grooming, uh, the clothing that you wear, your... Uh, uh, you know, different logos, uh, tattoos. It's all uh, a lot of self-expression. and We put it out there for anybody to see uh, if if that's who we are and, and that's important to our self-identity. But um, it doesn't cause you to look at uh, uh, any specific person um, uh, suspiciously or, or anything like that. You know, we were there to... Uh, concentrate on the criminal personalities that were uh, putting a public safety at risk. And that was our focus, not, um, you know, the people in your, in your community, uh, your neighbors, things like that. Uh, I cannot look at a large group of people and decide who is the most likely to be the next criminal. But when the crime is committed, um, and you go and look at what the person did, what the interaction was between the offender and the victim, uh, then all of our analysis and our lessons that we've learned are fair to employ in the investigation of this crime, if, if that answers your question. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so when you're profiling one of these crimes, um, do you, do you follow through to see if you've got it right later? Uh, I would have liked to have been able to do that, but unfortunately, um, uh, everybody's busy. We were exceedingly busy. We always had a number of cases on the go, uh, some, some simultaneously, uh, like maybe six, seven cases on the go, some of them murders or other cases, and you'd be... Uh, going from one case to another a lot of the time. Um, we didn't have time to, to get back and uh, reconnect with the investigators to find out the outcome. Sometimes people would call us to let us know what the outcome was, but not always. Um, in the major ones, uh, the important ones, and the ones we were involved with longer on a long-term basis during the investigation, we would have a higher likelihood of finding out what the outcome of all, all the investigation was, who was caught, what they were like. Things like that. Hmm. Who's the scariest person you ever profiled? Um, Other than me. <laughs> uh, a gentleman, well, not gentleman, uh, an individual in the city of Toronto who... Um, who committed a, a sexual homicide against a female realtor and uh, ended up um, sexually assaulting, killing her, and it was a real whodunit type of crime. And I was called in by the Toronto police. And, uh, of course, you know, there are always many different theories that go along with uh, an investigation. Uh, some people thought that maybe... Someone in a business relationship with this victim killed her. Uh, other people thought uh, it might have been an ex-boyfriend, ex-lover type of thing may have killed her. Or perhaps she was the victim of a stranger sexual predator. And I looked at the case and I was um, uh, confident that it was uh, in the um, realm of the sexual predator that was not necessarily connected to her, but they had a similar connection to this office building in which the murder occurred. And, uh, quite quite uh, unexpectedly, I met with the victim's family and gave them uh, my an explanation of what I felt and uh, uh, why I felt it. 
and uh, what I thought the uh, the murder was about, and um, the the victim's uh, sister actually went back based on some of the information in my profile and did her own little investigative work, which identified uh, information which uh, led to the killer's identity. He had done a couple of um, knife point sexual assaults and had done prison time for those two sexual assaults. And um, he was he was identified, he was apprehended, uh, he was convicted of the sexual homicide of the realtor, uh, and I think he would have gone on to commit other sexual homicides if he had not been caught. Uh, he was a real concern, a real risk to public safety, and um, a, a high risk to uh, a vulnerable uh, segment of the public, uh, women in, in downtown Wow. So p profiling helps to convict a lot of folks, but uh, has uh, any of your uh, profiling experience ever led to maybe somebody being uh, exonerated? Well, we, uh, very, uh, very little of it. Uh, I was uh, one time involved in a, uh, a case that, you know, it generally comes by phone, and a, an investigator called me up, and he said, uh, we're investigating a murder, and we've got uh, a woman who is covered in head-to-toes with bruises. The husband that she was living with had has a record of domestic violence against a previous partner. Um they had charged him with assault, and she had died over the weekend, and their intention on Monday morning was to charge him with the woman's murder. And I, over the phone call, I said, tell me more about this, and, and what did you find, and, and what did you see? And uh, uh, it, it sounded um, not really specific enough to be considered a murder, and with uh, there, there was a lot of alcohol involved in this couple's relationship. A lot of alcohol. They were heavy drinkers, and they were drinking heavily at the time of the death. Uh, and I said, "You want to be careful with this one because I have seen a number of cases where um, alcohol uh, on a real uh, drinking binge um, start banging into things." often that they're covered in, in really, really serious bruises, but yet the bruising is different. The bruising is more uh, not uh, very concentrated. It's larger and more diffuse and uh, looks more like a hemorrhage under the skin, and the location of the bruising doesn't really match where somebody would be hit in a violent fight. It's not on the head. It's not on the uh, the uh, torso or something like that. Uh, her bruises tended to be on, you know, the joints that would bang into things as a intoxicated person was stumbling around the house and falling down. And it looks different. It, it still looks pretty serious because of all the bruising, but it's not bruising that we associate with um, homicidal assault. And uh, ended up going down right that afternoon uh, because this was a Sunday and they were going to upgrade the charges on the Monday. So we had to look at the evidence, look at the uh, photography that was available. And my opinion to the lead investigator was this is not even a crime. This is one of those instances of a heavy, heavy drinker, binge drinking, falling down maybe banging her head, maybe getting an uh, intracranial bleed, uh, which caused the death. Uh, but, of course, you would have to wait for benefit of the autopsy to, uh, to confirm that. But uh, I said, we need to pump the brakes on this decision to charge him. And right now, I believe you've got an innocent man in custody for an assault that never happened. And uh, there was... Um, round of consultations between 
investigators, the regional pathologist, the regional crown attorney, and a, a few other folks that were involved. And um, they were all in agreement. And uh, we uh, we were able to take it, uh, essentially an innocent man out of custody to prevent him from being charged with a much more serious offense that he was not responsible for. When you have a, a high-profile case um, like Russell Williams, which we both kind of know a little bit about, you know a lot more than I do, of course, but um, on high-profile cases, does it make any difference to you as a profiler? Well, it, uh, certainly high-profile cases add a lot of pressure to everybody involved in the investigation. Um, there's a lot of um, public concern that they might be in danger, their relatives might be in danger. Um, yes, it's uh, it adds a lot more pressure. Uh, it's a lot more things are at stake. You don't want to make a mistake. I mean, we're we're human like everybody else and uh to err is human um if you're providing 200 opinions a year chances are each one of those opinions is not going to be right but we try to be way more right than we we are and uh sometimes your opinions are able to uh, help solve the case help uh get a um uh, confession or important admissions from a um, and and you know that uh, uh, you also have a potential to mislead an investigation as well, and that was you know my worst uh, nightmare that that you know I I would try not to let that happen. But um, yeah, a, a big case is uh, is important. It's important to um, the victim, the victim's family. Uh, everybody in the community, uh, justice as a whole, reputation of the police service, there's a lot going on there. And uh, we try and do our best job, and we try and help uh, the police do the most uh, efficient investigation they can uh, based on uh, what they have to work with. Now, the, uh, the Russell Williams case, I, uh, I had involvement in some of those, but the, the real... Um, Serious developments in that case occurred in the uh, Jennifer Lloyd case, and it was actually uh, one of my or, or two of my former colleagues that uh, uh, were on on site uh, dealing with that. Not me. It's a uh, you know, luck of the draw. Who got the phone call at the time? Who responded to uh, this particular crime? And uh, it was a different uh, profiler that went to that one, and that's when everything uh, lined up against Russell Williams, and um, his involvement in all those crimes became became known. Well, he was a pretty tough cookie in the sense that I don't think, w would you guys have realized that it would have been a colonel like that? Would that would, would that be something that would come up in a profile, someone like who, who had done military and all that? Well, um, I, was, I was in one victim's... Uh, Home, the, his first homicide victim. And uh, at that time when I was there, it was a um, an exercise in prioritizing a couple of suspects that they had at that particular time. And this was very, very early in the, in the investigation. Um, there was nothing in that house to suggest a colonel was in the house or... Uh, Russell Williams was responsible for this crime. Uh, there was there was one suspect that had a military background, and um, due to a number of circumstances, my opinion was uh, the investigators should concentrate more on him than the other two suspects that existed at the time. Uh, and in retrospect. Uh, both were in the military, both were pilots, both were connected to that victim, uh, both were, you know, colleagues of hers to some degree. Uh, and that, that was interesting, but, um, uh, I don't believe it would, uh, the profile would have been written to say high ranking, uh, military officer. It, it just wasn't there. 
uh, the primary focus was somebody knew her. Uh, I, I was convinced it wasn't a uh, uh, stranger uh, type crime where somebody just decided to go into that house. Somebody knew that victim was in there and went into that house to uh, access her. And uh, and that was uh, that part was accurate. Cases that you had sent me earlier to talk about, and uh, one that really stuck out was the uh, police officer that was arrested for murder uh, of his girlfriend uh, and an under cover psychic operation now, so that sounded pretty intriguing what what happened in that case well there was um, uh, a woman in the uh, greater Toronto area went missing and had last been known to be at her boyfriend's house and he happened to be a serving uh, uh, police officer and of course you know, uh, trying to establish a timeline in the victim's life, uh, he was interviewed, and uh, he said, she left my house, uh, everything was good, uh, I expected to see her again, and um, I don't know where she would have gone, but uh, I'm, I'm concerned as well. And he was a, a different type. He was not uh, immediately believed by the investigators, and they thought that uh, because... Her trail had dried up after uh, he was in, she was in his house, that uh, that relationship might have something to do with explaining her disappearance. And uh, there was just no other uh, activity going on in her life that would have suggested some type of conflict that would have led to her disappearance and or death. And uh, very uncharacteristic of her to, uh, to, you know, just go missing like that. So, of course, we uh, feared the worst for her uh, at the time. Um, in looking at uh, that officer, the victim, and their group of friends that all uh, socialized together, one of the common uh, patterns was they they tended to believe in psychics, and one of the associates or acquaintances in the group considered herself a psychic as well. And she said, oh, yeah, we all uh, really believed in it. So, again, trying to select the most appropriate uh, investigative um, uh, strategy, we decided that maybe one of the things we could employ was a uh, an undercover psychic. And uh, we... Uh, Selected an officer who you know, uh, could get the bill. Had a, uh, he could act the part. And he was pretty experienced, and uh, so we set up a ploy whereby uh, the undercover officer was supposed to be a psychic from Los Angeles and a very good one. And he had helped the police uh, on a number of um, successful investigations and. Uh, uh, we, or, or he had agreed to come, coming to Toronto to a psychic fair that just happened to be occurring at that time. And uh, he was going to volunteer his time to come over to the officer's house to see if he could pick up any psychic vibes that might explain uh, the circumstances of the victim's disappearance. And, uh, of course, we research what psychics do and how they go through their processes just to, to have the lingo down and uh, make it reasonable. We thought that uh, the police officer might check the credentials of the um, uh, psychic. And so we established a fake website in California where we were supposed to be from. And we had some of our colleagues in the United States that are, you know, very experienced police officers, and they were prepared, if contacted, to vouch for the psychic. Not necessarily believe in him, but say, yeah, he, he was right. He really helped us. He, uh, he came up with a few good uh, ideas for us. And um, that was all put into play, and the psychic, undercover officer was supposed to arrive in Toronto at the police officer's house on a Sunday evening. Uh, 
when he was supposed to fly into uh, Ontario from Los Angeles. And uh, that uh, Friday night, the uh, police officer who was the suspect called the uh, investigators and he said, I want you guys to come over to my house. There's something I need to show you. So with great apprehension, they went over to the house, not knowing what they were going to uh, run into. He invited them into their home, his home, and said, she's behind that wall. He had, uh, he had killed her in the house and put her body in a barrel uh, with uh, acid, and he had uh, sealed the top of the barrel and then put it and built a false wall in front of the barrel, and uh, the remains were behind the barrel, or uh, behind the false wall. And so they were able to uh, recover the, uh, the victim's body, uh, interview the uh, uh, offender, and they got uh, a number of uh, admissions and confessions uh, uh, that he was responsible for her death. Uh, undercover uh, operations are used uh, a lot in police work, uh, for drugs, their investigations, and uh, back in the 90s, uh, it started being used in homicides as well, and, and quite successfully. We, we've used them a number of times, um, and uh, to, to a fair bit of success, I would say, and have cleared a number of homicides that might not have been cleared otherwise. And it's, it's just our um, process of trying to understand the suspect their motive, why they did what they did to this particular victim, and um, uh, give them uh, a new acquaintance uh, that they are going to trust and bond with um, and make a voluntary uh, discussion about uh, what, they, what they did and why they did it. And, uh, and, and there's obviously a huge gain in evidence for us when we do that. And and that um, certainly led to successfully clearing that. I guess that's in reference. That would really be like the Mr. Big Sting. Uh, well, uh, sometimes we have used the Mr. Big Sting. That one wasn't. Um, that was, you know, and we try and get away from Mr. Big because um, uh, we were concerned that it's going to be recognized by offenders, yet it's still highly successful uh, because most offenders are motivated by a greed situation. Uh, but this one was different. Mr. Big invites uh, a suspect to join an existing criminal organization, and maybe there's rules that the uh, suspect has to do before he gets into the organization or there's some type of benefit. We'll take care of your problems if you join us. And, uh, you know, he often has been doing low-level criminal activity, uh, non-violent type things, uh, deliveries and, and things like that for money. And uh, it's a slow process of gaining trust and, uh, and getting them to join you. But then Mr. Big, the, or, the the leader of the organization, comes in and discusses his uh, involvement with them, and uh, sometimes there's confessions or admissions there. Our undercover um, operation was different than that. There was no Mr. Big in this. It was uh, um, exploiting the suspect's belief in other people's psychic ability, and he was so concerned that this psychic uh, was so competent and experienced that he would be able to uh, come up with some psychic information that he had been killed in the house, and he decided that uh, uh, rather than face that, he would, uh, he would turn himself in first. So we were quite surprised. It was highly successful. Um, it didn't cost a lot for us to do that. Uh, you know, uh, a bunch of phone calls, arranging cooperation of other people, planning, preparation, and, and it was um, just a little bit of theater to uh, to convince the suspect that uh, 
something was unfolding that might well uh, uncover his involvement and lead to his apprehension, he decided to end it first. <laughs> yeah. Did you guys ever really use psychics um, for, for any cases, or is that just more um, television again? No, that, that's, that's television. I mean, uh, we have, the police have been contacted by a number of psychics that uh, want to offer information or, you know, the theories they have. Uh, I haven't seen too many. I've seen a couple. It's generally pretty nonspecific type of information that really, you know, wouldn't go to help somebody. Uh, I, I personally don't have a lot of confidence in uh, psychics. Um, but if you do, I'm going to try and exploit that for the benefit of the uh, investigation. Um, yeah. But no, I, I have no personal involvement where psychic information uh, drastically aided a police investigation. Does it make it a lot harder when there's a cop involved, like as, as a suspect? Uh yeah, that's uh, that's something uh, very distasteful for the other uh, investigators, and and the fact that he has committed, like in, in the case we were discussing about, he has committed the most serious uh, criminal offense that anybody can commit in North America, in my opinion, unless you're multiple murder. Uh, but a single incident murder, it, it doesn't get any more serious than that, and. Um, that's not the conduct that we uh, expect from our colleagues, of, of course, but uh, we're, uh, we're duty-bound to um, investigate it uh, to the best of our abilities as completely as we can. Um, it's unfortunate. I mean, it was unfortunate for the military uh, when um, Russell Williams was captured, given his uh, high rank and everything else, too, but... Uh, I mean, standing back, the, you know, the police did nothing that would have impacted that officer killing his girlfriend. The military did nothing that would impact Russell Williams from committing all his various uh, crimes. These are uh, individual decisions uh, made by each offender uh, that they are going to pursue this criminal uh, career or criminal act. And they are the, you know, sole architects of the uh, of everybody's trauma uh, that ev that that they put everybody under, and uh, and and the consequences of uh, of what they face. They are solely responsible for doing it. You can look back at a person's background and say, okay, there's this in their background that was unfortunate. This happened at a formative period of of their life. And it maybe helps to understand how the person evolved and why they decided what they did, but it certainly doesn't go to condone what they did. So, uh, I mean, we, we look at a person's background, their lifestyle, a lot of traits that drive their behavior to get that understanding and to know how to deal with them. Uh, if, if we are going to concentrate on aspect A, I'm going to want to know everything about that person that I can find, uh, who they live with, how they live, what do they do for a living, uh, what's their recreational activities, what's their relationship activities. We'll go and, if necessary, interview previous girlfriends and ex-wives and find out a lot about them there. Uh, we'll look at criminal uh, histories and um, uh Activities that they've been involved with, if if it's available, I'll even watch previous interviews of the person um, to see if you know how they lie. Do, do they lie? How do they lie? When do they lie? Uh, what are their uh, unique phrases that they use in their language? And uh, I will structure an interview strategy uh, with a lot of that in mind because. Um, I like to say everybody has their own frequency. And if I'm going to interview you, I have to go to your frequency. I don't expect you to come to my frequency. So 
I'm going to learn everything I can about you and I'm going to plan the best possible approach to sit in a room with you and create an atmosphere in which you feel uh, prepared to voluntarily discuss your involvement in a crime with me. And that often is, you know, as a result of rapport building, uh, you, uh, conveying uh, a non-judgmental uh, approaches to a person, understanding similar value system that the other person has. Uh, if I'm interviewing you on a serious crime, I'm going to be your best friend in that room. I'm going to see the world through the perspective that you do and try and lead you to discuss uh, your involvement in the crime. And that being the case, uh, my job uh, is over once the crime is solved and we're off to the next uh, the next challenge. Okay, I admit it. I did it. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I did it. I broke down already. Um, I, so now, you, what have you moved on to since you retired from the police force? Now you do um, an investigation uh, solutions network. What What's that all about? I'm, uh, I have taken a lot of the uh, experience and, and training that I've had and on retirement. It's, it's all uh, transferable to the uh, private sector. And uh, I still offer my services as a certified criminal profiler and as a threat and risk assessment consultant. And a lot of what we get are um, cases of employers that have an employee of concern that they're worried about. Perhaps somebody has made a threat to do something against other employees or on termination, they're threatening to come back and harm people, things like that, or circumstances and aggression is building up at work, and they're concerned that they're going to have a, uh, a violent crime on their hands. And what we'll do is assess the person, their behavior, what they're doing, and the situation that exists at the time, uh, what's going to happen in the foreseeable future, and we'll give them an opinion as to how much risk this individual poses, if any. And a lot of it is low risk. It's, uh, maybe people expressing uh, a little bit of frustration, people that make a Mm, poor, poorly decided uh, threat, poorly timed threat, uh, but they don't really have a lot of personal commitment to carry out that threat. There's a lot of threats that are made, uh, but the art in this, if there is art, is to decide uh, who's going to carry out on the threat they made or do some other type of harm. So that's the uh, the threat assessment part of it. And then the risk assessment or risk management part of it is, now what are we going to do that's going to increase everybody's safety and security? How are we going to manage this individual? What are we going to do around him that could make the situation better? Or how do we improve the security around uh, the organization? prevent or lessen the risk of somebody coming in to committing harm against uh, other employees that are left behind. Uh, and we still, uh, we get a lot of those. We get uh, a lot of um, uh, criminal investigations, which are being done on the private side. Uh, people aren't prepared to go to the police. They want to retain the autonomy over the investigation and they want uh, some experienced opinions on how best to deal with it. Uh, is this likely to continue? How do we protect our assets uh, the best? And uh, we try and give the best possible advice we can. Uh, sometimes it's a quick opinion going out to them, and sometimes we're involved with them over a period of days, weeks, or months to help them walk through this particular incident that they're dealing with because it, it still comes down to um, uh, safety issues and uh, preventing violence and, and uh, there's a lot of carryover from what I did for many many years at the provincial police. 
That's great. So now what's the website for that? We can give it out and have it up on our website too. So uh, It's Investigative Solutions Network, Inc., uh, and it's uh, it's in Canada. It's uh, based in uh, Pickering, Ontario, and uh, it uh, it'll be a, a .ca uh, extension at the end of it. But if you just uh, Google that Investigative Solutions Network, you're going to find us uh, the website, services that are offered, uh, the people that are working for the um, company, and I mean, a lot of us have come out of the uh, policing realm, have had involvement with each other. We know what each other's skill sets are. Uh, we've done cases together. I, um, the CEO, Dave Perry, is a former homicide investigator uh, for the Toronto Police Service. And uh, Dave and I, or uh, Dave called me in on a couple of his uh, high-profile cases, and I was able to... Uh, uh, give him uh, my opinion and uh, suggestions as to uh, what would be uh, most successful. And uh, both, uh, both cases were solved, both uh, uh, homicides against children that were uh, quite disturbing in their own right, and uh, they were successful. Do you, do you think the crimes are changing somewhat nowadays? Um, like the, when you when people profile uh, serious crimes now, is is there some changes to to, to the way people do crimes? Sure, sure. Time uh, time changes. Uh, we change. Time changes as well. Uh, you know, everything about the social environment is changing right now. Uh, crime statistics are changing and. Uh, I was just looking at them the other day, and in the 10 years that I've been uh, retired, uh, one of the notable uh, findings is that there's more violent crime being committed by strangers. It always used to be this 84 to 86% of violent crime committed by somebody known to you, a family member, an intimate partner, a co-worker, an acquaintance, relative of some description, friend, something like that. And uh, approximately uh, 12% of crimes would be committed by strangers, uh, somebody with no previous existing uh, relationship. And, uh, you know, those are the more, sometimes the more concerning ones and harder to solve because you don't have that pre-existing relationship. Well, the number of stranger crimes uh, are increasing, uh, and and uh, it, it's it's up to about 16 percent now, which is still significant. 16 percent of anything is significant, and uh, we're going to have to monitor that. And uh, you know, we're seeing spikes in different types of crime. We're seeing more attacks against police officers. We're seeing uh, uh, increase of uh, crimes of extremism. We're seeing uh, more hate crimes uh, going on. So uh, that's that's one of the things that we would be expected to do when we were working uh, with the uh, Ontario Provincial Police to stay on top of crime trends and crime stats and stay with it and know where we were and. Uh, what would be the most likely explanation for this crime, and even try and forecast a little bit where are we going, what are we going to need, how are we going to best address them. And uh, certainly uh, in the last 10 years, things have been changing a bit. You can see that from the TV and the, the news stories. Uh, there's a lot of um, uh, fierce protesting going on, uh, a lot of uh, uh, extremists, thinking. There's a lot of uh, mistrust of government. There's a lot of uh, defiance of government. And uh, it's a strange place to be. And I'm, I'm not sure exactly what it's going to look like in another 20 years. But uh, uh, things are changing. And uh, uh, it's, uh, I, I think, a very demanding uh, time right now for police uh, agencies uh, all across North America, but certainly in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. There's so much going on, you know, and and the U.S. spills off into Canada too, so it's a large influence. It certainly does. 
you know, and a lot of negativity about policing mm-hmm. and stuff right now and government and uh, stuff. So, in that vein, I think a lot will will still remain the same. Uh, homicide is still a very rare crime in North America. It's more frequent in the states than in Canada. Uh, but there's only so many reasons why you're going to want to kill somebody. And uh, uh, violent crime is always reward-based. Uh, there's always some reward being gained by the offender, or you wouldn't do the crime. You wouldn't feel the need to do the crime, uh, whether it's revenge or some type of uh, gain, financial gain, uh, personal gain, personal cause, sexual arousal or gratification or some other emotional expression uh, or, or ego thing going on, uh, there's only so many reasons you're going to want to kill another human being. And uh, I'm not the guy you'd call in if you had a um, uh, gang shooting or something like that. You know, that's a, that's a crime-based disagreement between two organized criminal groups that are maybe vying for uh, drug trafficking or a particular turf area in a, in a, a city. Uh, I'm not the guy that figures that out. Um, but where you've got interpersonal crime that's committed for, you know, the usual reasons, greed, bad relationship, uh, sexual predation, that type of thing. Uh, yeah, it's, I expect a lot of that to remain the same. Uh, it's it's been that way since uh, the dawn of mankind. So I, I expect, with some changes, slight changes, it to remain largely the same. Well, it's been a great conversation. Thank you for uh, taking the time for us today. Um, our guest today is uh, criminal profiler Jim Van Allen. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Jim. Get the latest news and opinions from Eric Shapiro from the House of Mystery website in the Shapiro Report. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. By George, he's got it. It is the end. I'll see you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This is a production of Something Weird Media. 